<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot on our program today. Uh, why do the wealthy want to throw children off food stamps and Medicaid? I, this is actually more than just a snarky commentary. I, I'm going to dig into this. Is war on the menu for the 2020 elections? We talked about this briefly yesterday. My piece is up over at Salon and Common Dreams and Alternate and Raw Story and a whole bunch of places. We'll be talking about that some more. Uh, should Ernst and Young in our third hour be held accountable for trying to, quote, fix women? But I want to start with City Council Member Shama Sawant, Seattle Council Member representing the 3rd District, a member of the Socialist Alternative Party and AFT 1789. Shama Swan, spelled K-S-H-A-M-A-S-A-W-A-N-T dot org is her website. Vote Swan, V-O-T-E-S-A-W-A-N-T is the Twitter handle. And Councilmember Swan, welcome back to the program. It's been, Jesus, it seems like a year or so since we've talked. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me, and please call me Shama. Okay, Shama, it's great having you back on the program. You have been, you know, I mean, promoting a lot of really great policies in the Seattle City Council, including this head tax thing where, you know, giant corporations actually may have to pay some small amount of the, of the civic costs of caring for the infrastructure and whatnot that they're sucking up, you know, <laughs> and you're being rewarded for this apparently by, if the news stories I'm reading are correct, Amazon dropping just a little less than one and a half million dollars into local elections, much of it directed toward unseating you. Do I have that right? That's absolutely right. That is unfortunately what's happening. As you said, Seattle is a wealthy city. It's unbelievably wealthy. The richest two men in the world live in the Seattle area. And yet this city is experiencing the most unprecedented affordable housing and homelessness crisis. And that has a lot to do with the fact that Seattle and Washington State have been the nation's most regressive tax system, meaning the poorer you are, a greater percentage of your income you pay in taxes. And if you're a big corporation, if you're an, a billionaire, you pay nothing. And in fact, you get back in subsidies. As you know, Trump's new tax cuts gave Amazon a $129 million tax subsidy. This is absolutely absolutely outrageous, but it also means it's a horrendous situation because we don't have resources for affordable housing. And it's also a giant indictment on corporate for-profit construction market. You know, construction has been booming in Seattle, and yet during the same period, rents have skyrocketed and housing has become less affordable, not more affordable. And so, you know, we've been fighting for a very, very modest tax on the largest corporations like Amazon. And as you said correctly, Tom, they are absolutely going to war. The billionaires are going to war and they have Amazon and Jeff Bezos are attempting to carry out a hostile corporate takeover of City Hall by attempting to buy this election and really subvert the democratic process. It's pretty breathtaking, particularly when you consider that in 1917, during the Teddy Roosevelt administration, they passed the Tillman Act, which made it a federal felony for any corporation to support any candidate for federal office. 
Many states have had similar laws. Wisconsin's was probably the most well-known. It didn't get repealed until 1954. That said that any corporate officer, executive, or lawyer acting on behalf of a corporation who funneled anything of value, actually was the phrase, you know, uh, money support or anything of value to any candidate for elective office in the state of Wisconsin faced two years in prison in addition to a fine, as a very substantial fine. We used to have laws like this in virtually every state that forbade corporate activity. The Supreme Court knocked down most of those laws in 1976, some of them that had just been passed the year before in the wake of the Nixon bribery scandals, and the decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, then t- uh, you know, saying that basically billionaires could support politicians because that was their free speech, their money was speech. And then two years later in the first national bank case, they extended that logic to corporations in 78. That opened the door, the floodgates for all the money that, that brought us Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker. Bush as president, and that, you know, I would say put the Clinton administration big time in debt to some very, very wealthy people in large corporations. Is there any hope of pushing back against this, particularly given that the Supreme Court in 2010 with Citizens United in 2013 with McCutcheon just doubled down on this and said, no, uh, you know, governments can't pass laws to stop billionaires or corporations from basically buying local, for that matter, even federal politics? You're absolutely right. I mean, the, it's, it's abysmal, the Supreme Court's track record on these and many other issues. And it is precisely because of the complete disaster that Citizens United is that corporations like Amazon, but not just Amazon, the whole corporate real estate lobby, other billionaires, multimillionaires, all the corporate executives, you know, they, they are all, you know, pumping money, not only directly to my opponent's campaign, you know, a campaign coffers, but also to the corporate PACs. And as you said correctly, there's no limit against it. But I think the very fact that Amazon and the richest man in the world are going to war against ordinary people in Seattle and one socialist in City Hall, I think that itself is a reflection of how nervous they are because they have seen what has happened when ordinary people get organized and, you know, collectively build grassroots coalitions. They have their own elected voice through representatives like myself in City Hall, in the halls of government. You can actually make change possible that was hitherto thought impossible. You know, we won the $15 minimum wage. We have won landmark renters' rights victories. We have fought for and we are, you know, the movement for taxing big business has tremendous support among ordinary people in my district, in citywide and regionwide. And the support, Tom, for rent control is incredible in this city right now. And we are building a very powerful movement for rent control, which is another reason why the corporate real estate lobby all the hotel moguls, all of them are hand in glove with Amazon and Bezos in attempting to stop what's happening in Seattle. And the reason they're nervous is precisely because they have seen it is possible to win progressive victories when grassroots Democrats, socialists, ordinary people, union members, the labor movement, we get organized and collectively fight back. And they want to put a stop to it. And I think this is it's really uh, important. I'm grateful that you're you're covering this on your program, because what happens in Seattle has so much at stake, not only for people in Seattle, but nationwide. People should be watching this because the election outcome on November 5th in Seattle has consequences for other cities as well, you know, because Amazon and Bezos are using Seattle as a test lab. So if they succeed in straight up buying candidates and, you know, buying City Hall and flipping City Hall to the right, then they're going to try it in other cities as well. It is going to have consequences for the presidential elections. And that's why it's really crucial that everybody who's listening to this, if you don't want corporations to just blatantly, brazenly support the democratic process, that you all support our, our efforts here. Yeah, we're talking with uh, City Council Member, Seattle City Council Member Shama Sawant, representing the 3rd District. Shama, it starts with a K, K-S-H-A-M-A-S-A-W-A-N-T dot org. ShamaSawant.org is her website. Shama, this is my biggest fear. I live in Portland, and we are in the Washington State media market because Vancouver is right across the river from us. And I remember when Jay Inslee was promoting his carbon tax, and when that got 
first put in the ballot, uh, as I recall, it was two years ago, it had something like 70% support. It had widespread support in Washington State. And, you know, it was on as a ballot referendum. And every, literally, sometimes two, three times an hour on MSNBC and CNN, and it's pretty much all I watch here, uh, you know, to the extent that I watch television in Portland, was this continuous ad by this guy who was doing this imitation of Mr. Rogers, this former Republican Secretary of State, saying, oh, yeah, we all think that, you know, we need to get carbon emissions under control, but this will destroy the economy of Washington. And he was so nice, and he, you know, he didn't reveal that he was a Republican and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they poured so much money into that that they ended up winning, you know, I mean, the fossil fuel industry won. The ballot initiative went down in flames. I, I'm watching this happen all over the country where elections are being bought, whether it's at the state level and all the efforts by the Kochs and Alec and everything else. You know, I mean, this is what they did in Wisconsin with Scott Walker. Are you sensing that there is an uprising, a mass movement, that people are waking up, or are, are we at risk of falling back to sleep again and just taking our, you know, our information off? I'm sure they're running targeted Facebook ads as well, off Facebook and you know, TV ads and things, and, and missing what's going on around us. You're absolutely right that we have to be sober in assessing the forces that are arrayed against us. You know, we don't have the billions of dollars that they have to spend on races around the nation. Yes, they are buying up Facebook ads. There are all kinds of television ads that are vilifying and demonizing me personally and also our movement. They're using racist and sexist tropes, you know, the whole sort of, I mean, I'm an immigrant woman of color from India, so they're very freely using the subtext of the angry brown woman to try and attack our entire movement. And I see this as a conflict, not just between me personally and Jeff Bezos, but a clash between billionaires who want to maintain a status quo of deep inequality, injustice, and a world that is on its way to climate catastrophe unless we take urgent and bold policy steps to avert the climate crisis. So, you know, these billionaires want to maintain the status quo on one hand, and the vast, vast majority of ordinary people on the other who want a different kind of society. And you know, in terms of your question, I don't think the outcome is inevitable one way or another. I think ultimately what history has shown, whether it was the fight for marriage equality, civil rights, women's rights, or it was more recently the $15 minimum wage and the renters' rights victories that we have won in Seattle, all of it shows that it is possible for ordinary people to really build power from below and overcome the balance of forces. New York State just did that, the upstate, downstate housing justice movement won incredible victories. The New York Times said that the real estate titans were stunned by the victories that ordinary people won. It can be done, but it's not inevitable. We need to get organized in order to make that possible. There you go. Shama Sawant, uh, shamasawant.org, starts with a K, is, uh, has been with us. Thank you so much, Shama. Thank you so much, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman. Program. We'll be back with more. We'll be back with more of this conversation in just a moment. Uh, of you know, what's what's up with the billionaires? Where are they going? Why are they doing this? You know, why are they reveling and throwing kids off Medicaid, for example? You know, whether you use an office chair at home in your home office, whether you use it as a, even as a, you know, just a comfortable chair in your living room or whether you use it at work, you really want your chair to be comfortable, right? And the X chair is the most comfortable out there. Speaking from personal experience here. And thanks to the X chair's 38 no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction, you have no risk if you want to just try it for yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, they call it DVL, you'll understand why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you from the, the, the X-Basic, the X-1 through the X-4. The X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. And the X-Chair is now on sale for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you get a free set of the new XWheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jeffrey Sachs' new book, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. This is the preface. 
The foreword of the book, by the way, was written by Bernie Sanders. This is from the preface, though, by Jeffrey Sachs. Donald Trump becomes president of a nation that is deeply divided by class, race, health, and opportunity. In his acceptance speech, Trump pledged to be the president for all Americans. He also gave a very promising hint of how to pursue that objective in practice. Trump is a real estate developer, so it's not surprising that his brief acceptance speech was dominated by the idea of rebuilding, a word he mentioned four times. And then here's the quote. Working together, we will begin the urgent task of rebuilding our nation and renewing the American dream. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, and hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. End of quote from Trump. This is a valid, indeed uplifting perspective. America desperately needs rebuilding. Its infrastructure is decrepit. Its energy system is out of date for a climate-threatened economy. Its coastal areas are already showing grave vulnerability to rising sea levels and extreme storms. Its rust belt cities like Grand Rapids, Michigan, are boarded up. Its inner cities across the country are unhealthy for the people being raised in them. Rebuilding America's cities and creating a 21st century infrastructure could be Trump's greatest legacy. Trump's pledge to make America's infrastructure second to none is a correct and bold goal for America's competitiveness, future job creation, public health, and well-being. Yet, as I will explain in this book, America today is certainly no longer second to none. On a recent Sustainable Development Goals Index, the United States ranked 22nd out of 34 high-income countries. For Americans returning from foreign travel, the well-known sign that they've touched down at home is that the elevators, escalators, and moving walkways of our once-proud airports are out of order. A builder president could indeed help to restore vitality to the U.S. economy and put millions of people to work in the process. All of the major candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign pledged a major effort to rebuild America's infrastructure. Indeed, Trump suggested a hefty price tag of $1 trillion, which is a realistic sum and target for the coming five years, roughly 1% of national income every year. The keys to success in building a new American economy can be summarized in three words, smart, fair, and sustainable. A smart economy means deploying the best of cutting-edge technology. Our energy grid should be smart in economizing on energy use and incorporating distributed energy sources, such as wind and solar power, into the grid. Our transport system should be smart in enabling self-driving electric vehicles within our cities and 21st century high-speed rail between them. A fair economy would start with Trump's pledge to rebuild the inner cities. Such a pledge should include affordable housing, decent urban public schools and public health facilities, efficient transport services for low-income communities, parks and green spaces in places now burdened by urban blight, the cleanup of urban toxic dumps, comprehensive recycling rather than landfill, and safe water for all Americans. The water drinking disaster that afflicts Flint, Michigan, and similar crises elsewhere are brought to a rapid end and never recur. A sustainable economy means acknowledging and anticipating the dire environmental threats facing America's cities and infrastructure. The vulnerability of New Orleans levees had been predicted by scientists and engineers long before Hurricane Katrina. The flooding of New York City had been predicted long before Hurricane Sandy. The risks ahead to the United States in the event of unchecked climate change can be found in countless scientific and policy studies, such as risky business and the National Climate Assessment. Much could go wrong in an undirected building boom that is not smart, fair, and sustainable. Trump's campaign pledges to restore the Keystone XL pipeline and U.S. coal production are cases in point. Investing in a boom in fossil fuels would be an expensive dead end. Such projects will inevitably be closed soon after they are completed, if not in a Trump administration, then in the ones that follow. They are simply untenable environmentally, no matter what the lobbyists assert. Billions of dollars would be thrown down the drain to develop resources that will never be used. It's funny that climate deniers are chortling about the incoming Trump administration. Nature doesn't care what they think, and neither do the 192 other countries on the planet that signed the recent Paris Climate Agreement. Fossil fuel companies can spend money developing unusable sources, resources, but they would be throwing money down the mine shaft, as would the investors buying the, the bonds financing such hapless projects. Trump made another very important pledge in his acceptance speech that should underpin a successful strategy for building a new American economy. He said, I will harness the creative talents of our people and we will call upon our best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. America has nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the country, including every congressional district. And with the finest collection of engineering and scientific faculty, this is Jeffrey Sachs not talking, uh, faculty and knowledge in the world. These institutions of higher learning have schools of public policy, social work, public health, business administration, and environmental science. 
Most importantly, they have 21 million young Americans enrolled to gain expertise in the skills needed for leadership and skills for the 21st century. By harnessing the vast brain power and experience in our colleges and universities, in civil society and business, America could indeed enter an era of successful rebuilding, one that creates a smart, fair, and sustainable economy that is truly second to none and serves as an inspiration for other parts of the world. This is from Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote it in November of 2016, just you know, right after the election, before the inauguration. The book, Building the New American Economy. Let's see here. Chuck in Lafayette, Louisiana. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? Tom, last week you asked, why is Trump doing what he's doing? And my idea is that he's working on the biggest deal of his life, and that is finding a way that he can leave office due to a mental stress, mental imbalance due to the demands of his office. He sees Fox News leaving him, polls are leaving him. This whole thing about backing down with the G7 matter is a way of saying, look at what do I have to do to get you to force me out? What do I have to do to get you to do something? And here he's saying, I will back down if you present a good argument. Yeah. It's now just a matter of how he can work out a deal that he leaves office with no charges, all of his money, and his family is also free. And a forward-looking pardon for both himself and the entire Trump crime family. I'm not sure. I do think that he's planning on leaving office with the biggest deal of his life. Right now, China is financing the construction, which is going on right now as we speak, of a Trump Tower in China. And there might be more than one. I know of one for sure. Saudi Arabia is financing the construction of a Trump Tower in Saudi Arabia. He had already signed a letter of agreement with the Putin government for a Trump Tower in Moscow that was put on hold when he got elected president, but they were supposed to execute it you know, the week after the election when he was supposed to lose, and he didn't lose, so that's on hold. He's got Trump Towers in pretty much every place else he's gone to. The list is pretty breathtaking. And it seems to me, I mean, here, here's the list right here. Trump has met with leaders of at least 10 countries. He has a property in or is developing one, Turkey, the Philippines, South Korea, India, Indonesia, Canada, Ireland, Panama, the Dominican Republic, and the United Arab Emirates. He has Trump Towers in all those places. And those are pretty much the leaders that he has met with. In addition, he's met with leaders of three countries where they are currently building them with state-owned companies and state resources, uh, specifically or largely for uh, infrastructure. That would be China, Saudi Arabia, and South Korea. And, of course, he's got Russia on the hook. So I think that when he said he would be the first guy to get rich running for president, that's he right. was right. And I think that it's still going according to plan. And I think the, the only hitch might be, and frankly, I think it's the Syria thing that's going to hurt him with the Republicans in the Senate, is if the Republicans in the Senate decide that he's too dangerous or too toxic. And my guess is that the key pivot point is going to be the Republican primaries for the Senate. If enough Republican senators make it through their primaries or have primary opponents that they know are so weak that they don't have to worry about them, and we won't know that until February, March, April, depending on the state, that that well, would be that the might point be too too late for him i think he needs to do some planning right now so he can well he maybe i think this is one of the reasons why the, i think this is one of the reasons why the democrats are saying wait a minute you know hold on we're not going to have this vote before uh, thanksgiving like mitch mcconnell wants because mitch mcconnell wants knows as long as the republican primaries haven't been held trump still holds the senate once those primaries are over and those senators know they've got another six years which means they'll be there after trump is long gone they will feel safe to turn on him. And I think that's why Nancy Pelosi is saying, well, it might be next spring. Chuck, thanks for the call. So the Global Wealth Report tells us that the world's millionaires, and that is less than 1% of the world's population, I believe it's less than one-tenth of 1% of the world's population, now own more than half of the world's wealth. Pretty mind-boggling. And the New York Times is reporting that billionaires like Charles Koch and millionaires within the Republican Party, and virtually all of your elected Republicans are millionaires, are working as aggressively as they can to destroy health care for children. And doing this in a fairly straightforward way. This piece from truthout.org by Alex Koch, I mentioned this on the air yesterday, the Foundation for Government Accountability, the FGA, says that Charles Koch, 
and the Bradley brothers and a bunch of basically right-wing billionaires are funding programs that they've been whining and dining Republican politicians and White House staffers took them down to Walt Disney, according to a new report from the Center for Public Integrity. And the pitch, quote, make it harder for poor Americans to access government programs meant to help them get on secure financial ground, especially the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, commonly known as food stamps, and Medicaid. And then we get this report from the New York Times that over a million children have been kicked off Medicaid in the last two and a half years since Trump became president. Now, the trend was continuously more and more children being covered by Medicaid as a result of the Obamacare expansion and all this kind of stuff, right up until Donald Trump became president. And then state after state, because of ALEC and these state operations run by, you know, run with money from these right-wing billionaires, have been passing laws, you know, these so-called redeeming power of work laws saying that if you don't work at least 80 hours a month, you don't get Medicaid. Sorry. And, you know, in a lot of places, you don't have enough jobs to work 80 hours a month. And in other places, you've got other situations, you've got people who simply can't do that. I mean, you can't find a job that pays enough that you can put your two or three kids in daycare. I mean, it just, but a million children, now Joan McCarter writing over Daily Kos, a million children who had been covered by Medicaid no longer are, thanks to the Trump administration. One example is, this is from the New York Times, one example is nine-month-old Elijah Johnson in Texas. The New York Times reported, quote, the baby's lips were turning blue from lack of oxygen in the blood when his mother, Kristen Johnson, rushed him to an emergency room here last month. Only after he was admitted to intensive care with a respiratory virus did Mrs. Johnson learn that she had been dropped from Medicaid coverage. Elijah survived, as have two, Johnson's other two children, who were also dropped from coverage. She said, I've been on this emotional roller coaster. It's been a very scary month. And this is happening in red states all over the country, particularly Tennessee, Texas, and Florida, where Republican governors and Republican legislators are just stripping low-income children. And in most cases, these are families where an adult is actually working, but they are just stripping these children from the Medicare rolls. So the question is, why? Why would that be? Why are they doing this? Is it so that there'll be more money left over for the billionaires for the next round of tax cuts? Is that what's motivating them? Is it that they hate poor people? Is it that they think there's too many poor people and we need to call the herd? Is it some sort of mental illness like hoarding syndrome, only in their case directed toward money instead of newspapers and tin cans? Why are these billionaires doing this? Do you have an idea? Why would Jeff Bezos, a guy with more money than God, want to try to kick Shama Sawant off the city council of Seattle? Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Donald Trump tweeting that he's being lynched by Democrats. Right. Senator Susan Collins is concerned. She's so concerned about things. You know, yeah, it's just, I'm concerned. George Takai, who has just become such a trenchant observer of the political scene, tweets out, Trump compared the impeachment process to a lynching, to which I have two responses. One, don't even try and imply that rich white men were ever lynched by angry mobs in this country. That's vile. And two, 
It's not a lynching if Nancy Pelosi gives you enough rope to hang yourself, which is apparently what's going on. I mean, we're hearing right now that Mr. Taylor, Bill Taylor, the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, the current acting U.S. ambassador, in his opening statement to Congress, there were gasps and sighs in the room. 15-page long opening statement. One of the Republican hits on this whole investigation is, oh, they're, they're holding us behind closed doors. They're, they're doing this in secret. This is a star chamber. You can't have that. Well, the reason why Congress has to have these closed-door hearings is because the Republicans refuse to go along with impaneling a special prosecutor or a grand jury to do this, to do the preliminary investigation work. In the case of the impeachment of Richard Nixon and in the case of the impeachment of Bill Clinton, in both cases, Congress authorized a special prosecutor. For Nixon, it was uh, Archibald Cox, and then he was replaced by Leon Jaworski. And in the case of Bill Clinton, it was uh, Ken Starr. And that special prosecutor worked, in both cases, worked with a grand jury and brought witnesses before the grand jury. They testified under oath. The special prosecutor boiled, you know, sorted through thousands or hundreds of hours of testimony, came up with what they thought were the salient issues, and then handed that to Congress and said, here, you can decide whether or not you're going to drop articles of impeachment. And, of course, in both cases, Congress did. Ken Starr even made this giant, you know, report and made it public, complete with, you know, lurid pornographic stories. But in the case of impeaching Donald Trump, Congress has said, no, we're not going to vote for a special prosecutor. Are you kidding? You know, you had that with, with, uh, with, with Mueller. You don't need another one. We're not going to look into this stuff. Ukraine? Come on, give me a break. No, no way. So the Democrats in the House of Representatives have no choice but to hold these initial inquiries where you ask, where you have your counsel ask the questions and you, and you get all your baseline information. So then you, can, then you can decide whether you're going to bring these people back for public testimony, and if so, exactly what you're going to ask them, which is what happened when Sam Irvin started holding his hearings in... Uh, and Peter Rodino in the House of Representatives, Sam Irving in the Senate in, in 1974, and is what happened in 1998 when, when Newt Gingrich was holding his hearings, and there were you know, later hearings in the Senate, is that then they bring forward the, the same witnesses who had testified in secret, but you know, out of 50 or 100 witnesses, you may have three or four that are just the blockbuster ones, and you've got to go through that filtering process. And that's what's going on right now in the House of Representatives. And that's why it's behind closed doors, and no Republicans are not being blocked out. And the thing is, the chair is asking a question, the ranking member is asking a question. In other words, the head Democrat will ask a question, the head Republican will ask a question, and then all the rest of the questions are being asked by the staff lawyers, which we have found is, you know, which is kind of like the grand jury, and it's a far more efficient way to do it. So Republicans are forcing this process to operate this way, and then they're sitting around complaining about it. It's bizarre. But anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Wayne in Redding, California. Hey, Wayne, what's up? Hey, Tom. You asked a question about why you thought Bezos was doing this. Actually, I have three points on that. The first one is, is that I think the billionaires are truly, truly afraid of what's going down. They see this as the lead-in for confiscatory taxation, and they want to preemptively crush any opposition to their agenda so strongly that people give up. They want to stop the establishment of a precedent that it's okay to basically make the rich pay their share. I agree. And to that, I mean, it's not like Jeff Bezos or Amazon are going to be hurt in any consequential way if Shama Swant gets even the most socialistic of our policies passed through the Seattle City Council. It's that they don't want to establish a precedent. They don't want it to happen in other places. But the question that I would ask is the question that Ted Kennedy asked on the floor of the United States Senate back when he was still alive. Here he is. $240 billion in tax breaks for corporations, $36 billion in tax breaks for small businesses, 
increase in productivity, 42% over the last 10 years. But do you think there's any increase in the minimum wage? No. What is the price? We ask the other side. What is the price that you want from these working men and women? What cost? How much more do we have to give to the private sector and the business? How many billion dollars more are you asking? Are you requiring? When does the greed stop? Apparently it hasn't stopped yet, Wayne. No, and it's not going to. I think that one of the things that these ultra-wealthy people miss is that we have advanced as a society beyond the point where real, hopefully anyway, real pitchforks and torches and guillotines are not in use. But that's not to say yeah, that God forbid don't we don't. You know, enough. it's it, violence is no way to do this, and even talking about no, violence is not it's, productive, it's, way, it's, Wayne. It's particularly it's on not, the radio. And they're shoving us hard in that direction. Yeah, they are shoving us hard. I think that they're shoving us hard in the direction of waking the hell up. At least I sure hope so. Julie in Yonkers, New York. Hey, Julie, what's up? Hi. You asked earlier what might be a way to restore democracy. Right. I would say a prerequisite for that is to restore accurate method of voting and having your votes counted and verified. So yep, we need absolutely. to we need to deny any way to vote except for those who need need computers to mark their ballots. We need to have hand marked paper ballots and we need to have hand counted audits of every, of the ballots. I absolutely and agree and this is how it's done in literally every developed country in the world. We are the only, other countries have experimented with voting machines. Canada, parts of Canada experimented with them. They said, nope. Ireland, all of Ireland experimented with them for one election back about 15 years ago. They were so grossed out that they wouldn't even allow, as a country, their parliament said, we will not even allow these voting machines that we've used once to be sold as voting machines. They have to be sold as scrap metal. They have to be melted down. We don't want them inflicted on anybody else. We are the only country in the world that allows electronic voting machines, the only developed country in the world that allows electronic voting machines that are easily manipulatable, easily hacked. I mean, DEF CON, the last DEF CON convention, they had over 100 different machines from different manufacturers in different years. Every single one of them was hacked in less than 15 minutes. An 11-year-old kid hacked one of them in eight minutes from a cold start. And this is just so wrong. And, you know, Democrats have been yelling about this since 2002 when the Help America Vote Act gave the states $5 billion to buy these machines and kick this thing off in a big way. And I predict that Republicans will be using voting machines as the excuse to complain about the election was stolen from them when they lose the next time around. But, Julie, you are absolutely right. They're preventing passage of the SAFE Act nationally. Yep, you're absolutely right. And fake paper ballot machines hybrid printer scanners that can send your ballot under the printer after you cast it are being distributed in all the major swing counties and swing states as we talk right now. Yeah. They should be banned by the states that still have majorities that theoretically care about the right to vote, the, the use of hybrid touch screens. Yes. All touch screens need to be banned. Except Spot for on. few people who need them to mark their ballots. Yeah, except for disabled people. I'm with you. Absolutely with you. Julie, thank you. Ramon in Washington, D.C. Hey, Ramon, what's up? The way I see it is, yeah, he can get impeached. You, know, you could signal to European Union that, hey, we're okay if you guys want to try this guy in The Hague. We can't do that because George W. Bush pulled us out of that treaty. Oh, really? Yeah. George W. Bush pulled us out of that treaty when Ellen Ratner's brother, Michael, tried to prosecute Dick Cheney for war crimes in The Hague. Bush pulled us out. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, or you need to put him up for the funny farm when he get out. But I'm going to say this, that if Nancy Pelosi allows Trump to get away with all the money that he's stolen from this government, I will lose my mind down here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of us will, Ramona. <laughs> you know, there's the, the, the disgust, the absolute utter disgust among, I think, the vast majority of the American electorate about this this craven orange hustler, this grifter, and his grifter family, and his kids who complain about you know Joe Biden's son trading on their dad's name. How ironic! It's just oh, it's over the top. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. And I really think that Americans are starting to wake up, and it's about damn time. We'll be back.
Jeffrey in uh, Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, Jeffrey, what's up? My question is, you asked how to restore democracy, and I think you have answered it brilliantly in your book about so we the people or something like that, about removing constitutional rights from corporations. Right. And I would love to get an updated comment if your views are the same or if they've changed about the importance of that. Yeah, We the People was the illustrated uh, kind of a comic book, only it's like a, a graphic novel kind of book. It's a uh, hundred and some odd pages. Is that the one you were talking about? About 9-11 um, and how no. George Bush exploited it and all that kind of stuff? No, it's the book. Oh, you're talking about ultimate, uh, you're talking about uh, unequal protection, the book on the 14th yeah. Amendment, how corporations yeah. became people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. unequal protection is still in print. This is the battle of our time. And it's going back to the battle that happened during the Teddy Roosevelt presidency, which was the first time that there was a major pushback against corporate and billionaire power. Of course, they weren't billionaires back then, but in today's dollars, they were. John Rockefeller was worth, you know, something like $100 billion in today's dollars. Basically, the first serious pushback, their hallmark, center mark, most famous piece of legislation, 1907, was the Tillman Act, which made it a felony for any corporation to give money to any candidate for federal office. And that was imitated wow. by states all over the country. It was imitated by the state of Texas, which is why Tom DeLay was prosecuted by the state of Texas for taking corporate money. And I believe he was convicted. I, I don't uh, recall following that to its very end, but uh, or pled guilty or pled out or something, I don't know. But I think that we are back at that time. And, and, and keep in mind, you know, what provoked Teddy Roosevelt's ire and Taft's after him. And it had been 20 years of major disruption starting around the 1880s, the mid-1880s, you know, going to the Haymarket Square and, and the Pullman Porter strike and the Ludlow Massacre, which was a little before, I believe that was in the 1870s. And you get all this stuff, you know, there was like this 20, 30 year period where, you know, workers were being slaughtered. They, they were being exploited. The Supreme Court was, you know, defending uh, the corporate right to do that. You had uh, the Pinkertons, you had private police department, you know, basically kind of Blackwater operations that were going out and killing labor organizers. Joe Hill was murdered, you know, Woody Guthrie was singing about this. I mean, all this stuff was happening and we got some good legislation out of it. And then Herbert Hoover and, uh, well, it was a series really of three presidents there, Harding, Coolidge and Hoover, who all kind of rolled back a lot of that, frankly. And then, you know, it all blew up in our faces, and the consequence of that meltdown was the Franklin Roosevelt presidency. Put our country back together, and hey, we, things were going well, and corporations were in a bottle, and rich people were behaving well, right up until 1978, you know, uh, roughly 78, when the Supreme Court said, oh no, corporations could throw unlimited amounts of money. And, and here we are. So yeah, we've got to fix this, Jeffrey. We really do. And I still believe that a constitutional amendment to say corporations are not people and money is not speech is what we have to do. And lacking that, we should pass a law saying that and add to that law court stripping, add to that law a sentence that says, and the Supreme Court may not review this law. A lot of people are making a lot of claims about CBD oil, and it, it actually seems that a lot of people are getting benefits from it, and I'm one of them. I've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for a while and love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, it's nuleafnaturals.com, and save up to 30% off, excuse me, save 30% off, and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back. Boy, the Republicans are really trying to ramp up this, we're the victims, this whole Republican snowflake thing. Let me just lay out for you what's just happened in the U.S. House of Representatives. The Intelligence Committee was holding a hearing this morning, and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Laura Cooper, was testifying. Now, Trump had told her not to testify, and she said, I'm going to do it anyway. 
So here's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense speaking in, behind a, in a closed-door session to the Intelligence Committee, which has, you know, it's half Republicans and half Democrats. And a group of Republican members of Congress came bursting in through three different doors into the committee room. Now, you're not supposed to bring electronic devices like phones into these hearings at all. They all had their phones with them and stuff. Some of them were recording, apparently, this. You're not supposed to go in at all. And this is a stunt. They did this purely for Fox News for this sales pitch that they're saying that the Democrats are excluding Republicans from the impeachment process. And therefore, it's an entirely partisan process, which is complete BS. Every member of the Intelligence Committee is if they're not in the room, they certainly have the ability and right to be in the room. I mean, somebody might have left to use the bathroom or go vote or something, but basically it is the entire committee, Republicans and Democrats. So these guys don't even have a legitimate complaint. They are manufacturing propaganda. Oh, we're Republican, we're conservative snowflakes, and we're so taken advantage of all the time. It's so sad. So Louise said we've had several calls from people going, what the hell is going on? You know, is, is, is the impeachment hearing being held behind closed doors? Yes, because you've got to gather the information before you have the open hearings. And Bill Barr refuses to do it, which is his job, by the way, is to hire somebody to do it, you know, a special prosecutor. He won't do it. So Adam Schiff is, is having to do it himself. But there's nothing untoward about this. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a completely normal process. So, anyhow, I just, just wanted to, uh, to give you a heads up on that and let you know what's going on. Steve in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, Tom. It's so good to talk to you. Your show is great. I'm glad you're talking about this issue. You know, it reminds me of the Brooks Brothers riot. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the exact it's same strategy. Horrible. And those were all guys yeah. from Tom DeLay's office who went down to it's Florida horrible. and pretended they were Floridians and, you know, stop the count, stop the count, George Bush is president. And, you know, they knew that if all the votes were counted, Al Gore would have won Florida. And in fact, Al Gore did win Florida once all the votes were counted. It's just that it was never officially certified. Back to you, Steve. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, I was just going to say, like, but in a way, it's worse than that, because at least in Florida, they were, like you said, pretending to be good. But here, they're just themselves. These are congressmen acting like goons. They're acting like brown shirts. Yep. This is horrible. And to me, I, you know, I like to play this game. I think to myself, okay, there's a difference between what's the most important issue and what's the most urgent issue. And, and it's hard to know what to prioritize, you know. Mm. And that's why, you know, I'm a big environmental guy. But, like, these days, I think, really, we need, like, a big mass protest to save democracy. You know, this lawlessness has got to stop. This is well, the biggest mass the protest we're going to have is going to be on November 3rd of next year. And let's all not just pray, but also, you know, get all our friends out there and make something out of it. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for the call. Boy, it turns out that Donald Trump conspired with Matt Goetz and these other Republicans. There are 30 House Republicans who met at the White House yesterday for a two-hour meeting with Donald Trump, and they worked out, you know, hey, let's storm the, the hearing room. We don't want any more people. I mean, you got, you've got a woman from the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense testifying before Democratic and Republican members of Congress as to what's going on, as to the crimes, the treason that Donald Trump is committing. And these guys go barging into this skiff. By the, by the way, this is a skiff. A, a skiff is a sensitive compartmented information facility, S-C-I-F. And Mike Young is tweeting about this uh, right now. He says, uh, these devices are carefully designed and controlled to ensure that electronic signals, surveillance methods, or other listening devices do not compromise the information discussed in these rooms. Points out that members of Congress are among uh, the most vulnerable to foreign countries trying to hack into their phones, into their devices. I mean, you know, they, they, they want to get blackmail stuff on them. They want to know, in, they want intelligence. They want to know what's going on in America. So these hearings are being held in a skiff, in a secure, compartmented information facility. You can't bring electronics into these.
He writes, bringing electronic devices, as these Republicans just did, they just barged into this skiff, is very problematic, especially when done by members of Congress, because members of Congress are high-value targets for compromise by foreign intelligence services. And then he goes on to talk about this is why they leave. Everybody has, there's a security guard and a series of cabinets for people to leave and lock their electronic devices before they go into the room. Failure to follow this protocol can violate the security of the entire skiff. After an incident like this happens, they basically shut down the hearing. After an incident like this happens, countermeasures have to be taken to ensure the skiff is not compromised. It's a time-consuming technical process. But in storming the skiff without observing the security pro protocols, Representative Matt Goetz and his Republican co-conspirators endangered our national security and demonstrated they care more about a political stunt than protecting intelligence information. I cannot emphasize, this is a fellow who works in national security, I cannot emphasize enough how serious this is. This is mind-boggling. Fred in Deering, New Hampshire. Yeah, hearing about the Republicans uh, storming the meeting reminded me of a quote. I looked it up. It's Al Sharpton. It goes back to June 6th, 2018, interview with Guardian, where he said, the Democrats are too tame to deal with Trump. And I believe that. I, I really wonder, my question is, why can't these folks get arrested for trespassing or endangering the security of our nation. I think there's a battle between real facts and right-wing takeover. Yeah. And that you need to, I don't want to sound like I'm threatening, I'm not, I'm just saying figuratively, step on their throat. Yeah. Now, the, the, the problem, and there's actually some speculation about this in the press right now, there was an article, I believe, in the Washington Post I was reading during the break, that the Democrat, that Adam Schiff specifically, you know, he's, he's running the, the, he's the head of the Intelligence Committee and running the hearings. And like I said before, you know, it's 50-50 Democrats and Republicans in this room listening to this testimony that the Republicans don't want anybody to hear. That Adam Schiff, he has the power to ask the sergeant at arms not just to remove these guys, but to arrest them. But if he does, then they get to double down on being victims. Oh! We're such victims now. Adam Schiff wants to put us in jail for simply trying to tell the world what's going on. You get this? I mean, that's yeah. the, the, these guys are playing snowflake to the max. And, you know, Al Sharpton's observation, I think, when you are trading in principles, when you are led and guided by principles, the, the principles of democratic governance, for example, or the truth prevailing, things like that, and you are confronting people who are not guided by principles, you're confronting people who are guided by pure power and have been bought off by a bunch of billionaires who are making sure that their nests are well feathered and will be for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a damn difficult thing. I mean, you know, it's it, it's like bringing a knife to a to a to a gunfight, and uh, but you know, on the other hand, the alternative to that is to become just as corrupt and just as as um, uh, you know willing to engage in in illegal behavior as the Republicans are. And this is the this is the challenge that the Democrats have had for the last thirty years with regard to voting. Republicans are you know throwing hundreds of thousands of people a year off the voting rolls in the various states, and and in my opinion, rigging voting machines. And the Democrats are like, well, we don't think that's a good idea, but we're not willing to do the same thing ourselves. You know, I mean, they could easily go into Republican districts where Democrats control states and say, oh, gee, look at it, it looks like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people just just uh, moved out of the most expensive suburbs of, you know, fill in the, fill in the city, right, of Minneapolis or something. And, uh, but Democrats don't do that. Democrats don't break the law. Republicans do all the time. And we've got to figure out how to deal with this, Fred. I, I'm with you. Fred, thanks for the call. Nick in Chicago. Hey, Nick, what's up? Hey, John. Good, to, good hearing from you. First time caller. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm well. What's up? So I was reading everything on Twitter about what Matt Getz and everybody in the House Republicans are doing with the skiff room. And you gotta, you got to hand them in. They really like to have their cake and eat it, too, as far as following the law. They're really quick on uh, calling out the uh, legal immigrants for violating the law when they just go and do it so brazenly. Yeah, they, they jumped over the wall, essentially. You're right. So, so 
I don't get why I get why they don't want to be called victims, but at some point, when do we have to stop caring about our image and do what's right? You mean arrest these guys? Not just. I mean, I, I know you wouldn't agree with that, but I would say say more than arrest them. I mean, I wouldn't mind if they if they got pushed around a little bit. Yeah, I know you don't agree that's, with that. That's going to see. That's going to backfire on you, Nick. I mean, you know. It, that would just backfire terribly. But, you know, what we have here, it's phony outrage by Republican hustlers. And these people are hustlers. I mean, they're grifters, just like Donald Trump is. They're just political grifters rather than business grifters. When they leave politics, they typically become business grifters. They become lobbyists. But that's what's going on. And, you know, they succeeded in shutting down this impeachment hearing for one day. One way that this may work against them is that the longer these impeachment hearings take, the more likely they are to resolve after the Republican primaries in the early months of next year. And once the Republican primaries, at least for the Republican senators, are done in the, uh, next year, the Republicans in the Senate, and some in the House actually, will no longer fear a primary challenge being led by Donald Trump or you know, uh, being, being la uh, launched by a, by a politician who swears that he's loyal to Donald Trump. They no longer will fear that, and they are probably going to be more likely because everything we're hearing is that most of the Republicans in Congress actually hate Trump, they're going to be far more likely to vote to impeach the guy and remove him from office. So, you know, at the end so of the day, me, maybe, go yeah, go ahead. So go, going back to my original point, and I, I'm going to end on this question. If you're Nancy Pelosi and if you're Adam Schiff, how do you address this tomorrow? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that right off the top of my head, Nick. I need to think about it a little more and, and learn a little bit more about it. We've never, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't seen anything like this since, uh, you know, Matthew Lyon and Roger Griswold got in a fight with pokers from the, from the fireplace on the floor of the House of Representatives in 1798. Nick, thanks for the call. Jeremy in Indiana. Hey, Jeremy, what's up? Yes, uh, so I, I live in a very red district, mm -hmm. and earlier, a while, like when, when years, a couple of years back and stuff, the Republicans I speak to would say, oh, if Trump was breaking the law, then they'd impeach him. And of course, they weren't impeaching him, and now they are finally. And mm -hmm. now, like with the skiff thing, the Republicans are like, well, if they broke the law, then they should be arrested in prison. And my Republican friends say, you know, I would vote for Democrats, but they, 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 they're weak. They don't enforce the law. They, they always, you know, and they use other words for them. And yeah. I get this on Twitter as well. And I feel like the, Repub uh, the Democrats, you know, you can be, uh, you can uphold the law and you can stand strong at the same here's time. The, here's the you problem, Jeremy. If Adam Schiff said, we're going to hold these guys in contempt of Congress, which is the principal power that he has, um, or we're going to have the Capitol Police come in and arrest him or whatever. And, and through one of these techniques, or even called, you know, the, the FBI to arrest them, whoever arrests Matt Getz and the other Republicans, the criminal referral has to be made to Bill Barr at the Department of Justice. Bill Barr was the one who got the criminal referral from, you know, from, from the State Department, from people in the State Department saying, you know, what Trump is doing in Ukraine is, is criminal. And Bill Barr was the one who decided not to do anything with that. And this, and this isn't the only one. You know, you know, there have been multiple ones. But Bill Barr is the one who's right now refusing to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Trump's crimes. Bill Barr is not going to prosecute Republican members of Congress. He's, he's a total shill for yeah. you know for these right wingers and and you know he and, and he believes in this whole you know uh, opus day thing i mean it really goes back to plato of the of the noble lie you know the the the, the small crime that that protects the larger greater good and he, and they these guys don't believe in democracy they believe that the larger greater good is a plutocracy is rich people running the country yes but and theocrats the thing Yes, but you can't hold back out of fear of what the Republicans are going to do. No, it's not fear. It's just that nothing would happen. I mean, you know, if it, but 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 I think it would make great theater for these guys to be arrested. Yeah. Um, and and it might you know it might push that that issue. I'm you know Jeremy. I think that maybe we're on the same page. Um, thank you very much for the call. I'm not. I am not 
by any stretch of the imagination saying that Adam Schiff should be Mr. Wishy-Washy here or Mr. Nice Guy or that there should be no consequences to this. I think he needs to drop the hammer. Ryan in Springfield, Massachusetts, listening to WHMP. Hey, Ryan, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was just uh, curious last night, so I actually turned on Fox News for about five minutes, and I saw Senator Graham on there, and he made a statement. He said that, uh, I forget the name, but he, he mentioned someone who was higher up in the Ukraine government said they didn't even know anything about a quid Right, this is quo. the new excuse. It was blown, it's blown up with a front page article in today's New York Times. The Ukrainians knew that the weapons were being withheld back in August. And these crimes, you know, that are being laid out right now were committed in September. So, uh, yeah, it's a lie. It's just another lie. Ryan, thank you for the call. Thanks for pointing that out. I mean, it's good stuff to, to know, to, you know, because you are going to be hearing these Republican talking points more and more and more. And they are simply plain old, flat out, unadulterated lies. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the program. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Tell your friends about progressive media. Tell them where you're hearing this show. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hey, want to tell you about a great podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest news and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast.